is a tall, athletic specimen of masculinity. I'm going to let him be seated and I'm going to stand. <laughs> I'll feel better about myself if we do it that way. Um, is this a live mic? Live mic. All right. Um, why, don't you, why don't you tell us, uh, first of all, just very, very briefly about uh, something about yourself. You're married. You have children. Where are you from originally? Um, I was born in Chicago. Um, I am married to Nisi. It'll be eight years in October. Um, have two little girls, Rachel, uh, who's five, and Rebecca, who is four. Okay. Uh, so you're from Chicago. Will the Cubs ever win the World Series? Absolutely. <laughs> this man is a Cub fan. The Red Sox did. <laughs> That's right. The Red Sox did. You're exactly right. Uh, why don't you share with us? He, he shared at a men's retreat several years ago now. I'm not sure exactly how many, Bruce, but I know that both of you have shared together in the past. But why don't you just specifically share with us basically what you shared at the, at the men's retreat about how you came to know Christ? Um, it, like I said, I... I grew up in Chicago. Um, I grew up never knowing my father. Um, basically, the the time I was born, from the stories that my mom told me, um, my dad was married to someone else when she had me. Um, and being a single mom, um, she had to work quite a bit, um, and which left me pretty much on my own accord um, uh, in growing up. Um, so at an early age, um, you know, I became very um, promiscuous, uh, started drinking at a very early age, 10, 11 years old. Um, part of uh, growing up there um, at times, um, my mom would kind of, I guess, ship me off here and there to different relatives so that she could either work or just, uh, I guess, have some time to herself. Um, during a uh, summer, she um, took me to my brother's, uh, who my brother is um, 18 years older than I am. So um, she dropped me off there for a summer. And um, one, um, one day, my brother was at work. Um, and... He had some neighbors uh, that I had seen. He talked to them and everything. And um, they had, uh, it was two men, and they asked me to come in, um, and they raped me. Um, it's okay. I thought I was going to make it through that. Um, so, you know, but before I left, um, that house, um, I could hear them laughing, and um, after that point, growing up, um, I was just I was filled with a lot of hate, um, a lot of anger, um, and I just always had that laughter um, in the back of my mind. Um, so, as a um, result of that, I, you know, I, I just kind of went through. Um, my teens and young adulthood, um, always trying to prove that I was some some kind of man. Because of that act, I felt I was less than a man. Um, and so I just, I fell into just thinking, um, you know, drinking and fighting and 
sleeping with as many women as I could made me a man. Um, you know, that was my worldly vision of being a man. Um, and uh, that just um, pretty much just, you know, um, prompted me into a, just a, basically a downward spiral. Um, there was a point in my life that I had reached um, where I was living out of a car. Um, you know, it, eventually I was able to get on my feet um, a little bit, and uh, around that time, that's when I met Nisi. Um, and but I was still just in that, you know, just hurtful mode. I just I, I would detach myself emotionally from anybody. Um, it really didn't matter. Um, and you know, Nisi and I had a uh, rough couple of first years that we were together. And there was a night when I was out drinking, and I came home, and Nisi had just had enough. Um, you know, she said she loved me, but um, she kicked me out. Um, that's what she had to do. Um, and so I went out uh, drinking again. And that night, I was coming home. Um, I lost control of my car, and it started spinning off into a field. Um, and for a few seconds, I was actually trying to control it, and then I just took my hands off the wheel. Um, at that point, I just resigned myself to the fact that I was just ready to die. I was tired of hurting. I was tired of hurting everybody in my life, and I was just comfortable with dying that night. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully, God had something else in plan for me. Um, I felt the car hit and somehow I stumbled home. Um, the next day, I um, went to the site with the tow truck driver, and Nisi um, was there as well. Uh, she was the first person that I could think of to call. And, of course, um, you know, her being so loving, she, she came to make sure I was okay. Um, but the car, to me, and, you know, people can look at me crazy, but it just looked like the car passed through about three trees because it was just the tow truck driver said, I have no idea how this car got in here. Um, they had to do all kinds of stuff to even get it out. Um, and it, like I said, it just, God had something in, in, in store for me in order to spare me from that night. Um, you know, from, from, from that time, um, Really, Nisi and I started growing together. Um, it was because of her love for God um, that I really came to know God. Um, you know, and you know, thankfully, through um, you know her love and compassion, I came to know the love and compassion of God. Um, you know, I guess it was. Um, you know, after all that, I, I've been blessed with so much in my life. Um, a little over a year ago, I did find my dad. Um, we have a relationship now. Um, you know, I found out I have a sister. We have a relationship now. Um, and, you know, I, I guess if 
you could put, I guess, any type of title um, on my journey. It would just simply be love. Um, the, the early part being what I thought was a lack or absence of love. Um, middle part being, you know, searching for what I thought was love. And in the end, just finding ultimate love with God. Um, and if I could just read sure. real quick. Um, it's just one of my favorite um, verses. Um, and it, it, it just speaks of the love. Um, it comes from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And you know, if it wasn't for God's love and grace, um, you know, I'm, I'm certain I would just be a derelict wino on some bench somewhere. Um, and certainly, um, <clears throat> because of the love that my wife has shown me, um, I've been able to um, be blessed, as I said, with many things. Um, most importantly, um, two little girls. Um, and I know love every time that they, uh, they hug me and call me Papa. Um, and just, uh, I thank you, uh, for allowing me to share and, uh, just be, be part of this relationship. Thank you. Thank you. Would, would you uh, join with me and pause for just a moment and give God thanks for His incredible love? Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God commends His love toward us or demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. Here's um, evidence, tangible evidence of God's love and grace to us in Christ. And may we not pause and give God thanks for His goodness to each one of us but especially uh, for Bruce and Nisi, for Rebecca and Rachel. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice tonight in a goodness that's greater than all of our sin, for a grace that subdues our hearts, that redirects our lives. Uh, We're grateful that in the fullness of time you sent Christ uh, to rescue us, to redeem us, to purchase our salvation. And we rejoice in the fullness of that love, that is ours because of Him and because of what He has done for us. Thank you for your evident hand of grace and power 
upon Bruce's life. How you've called him to yourself. You've placed him in the body of Christ. You've placed his family within the realm of grace. And now you're sending him to Guatemala on a missions trip. May he be a messenger of that grace there. And may you continue that good work that you've begun in his life, in Nisi's life. And may it abound in the lives of their children. For all this we pray with thanksgiving in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you, Bruce.
finished work captures my gaze. You bore the wrath. Now I know the grace. Church history reveals how those who've been greatly used of God as instruments of kingdom advance and blessing have been men and women of prayer. Their lives were characterized by diligent, needy, fervent prayer. They were intercessors. They gave themselves to believing prayer. I've had an opportunity to read some biographies, and I want to read a lot more of some of these great saints of history. But a single unifying characteristic emerges as you read about these men and women of God whom God was pleased to use as mighty instruments of renewal and reformation. And that characteristic is they were praying people. Uh, They prayed, as uh, the Puritans said, they prayed until they knew that they had prayed. They gave themselves to devotion. They gave themselves to the ministry of God's Word. But it all began in private supplication and petition before the Lord. Uh, George Whitfield was often up at 4, 4.30 in the morning. He had an open Bible. He had Matthew Henry's commentary. And in the early days as a believer, he had the Book of Common Prayer. Those were the means of warming his heart in the presence of God until he began to pour out his supplications and petitions before the Lord. John Knox is said to have paced the floor in his humble confines in Scotland pleading for God to send a fresh profusion, a fresh outpouring of His Holy Spirit so that there might be a new reformation take place in Scotland. And Mary, Queen of Scots, said she feared nothing on earth as much as the prayers of John Knox. Martin Luther was a very busy man, and it was said of Luther that he once said, I have so much to do today, I need to spend a lot of time in prayer. I'm tempted to do the other. I have so much to do today. I don't have time to spend in prayer. But Luther gave himself to prayer. And God used him as the spark, the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation. Ian Murray's biography of John Edwards describes Edwards as riding on horseback out into the woods where he would spend prolonged periods of time in praise and worship of God until his soul began to melt before the Lord in heart longings to be increasingly useful in the Lord's service. It was Edwards who preached at Northampton, and the power of God fell afresh as both saints and sinners were convicted of their need of Christ, and they found the remedy in the gospel of grace, even as Bruce Nick shared with us this evening. On and on I could go. Howard Taylor described his father, who for 40 years, he said, "...the sun never arose over China." without Hudson Taylor on his knees before God, pleading for grace and pleading for gospel fruit, pleading for the conversion of souls and for the mighty arm of God to be bared so that the kingdom of God would come with fresh power and fresh blessing in China. And there were scores, hundreds and thousands of people who were brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the medical ministry and the ministry of God's Word of Dr. Hudson Taylor. 
We could go on and on and on and on, but certainly prayer is a leading hallmark of believers. And it's one of the kingdom priorities that we're looking at this summer as we consider the kingdom priorities and the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. This series began several Wednesday nights ago, and we began to look at how the gospel begins and how the gospel spreads. It spreads like a sower sowing seed. Last week we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I hope that we came away with some understanding that mercy is a hallmark of the kingdom of God, that we have received incredible mercy in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw, I hope, something of that mercy in the parable of the Good Samaritan last week in Luke chapter 10. As recipients of saving mercy, as recipients of an outpouring of God's abundant mercy upon us in Christ, we're to live out the implications of that mercy in fresh ways. And I hope in some ways the parable of the Good Samaritan pointed us beyond that parable to an even greater Samaritan who found us as a victim of sin and misery and rescued us and redeemed us and poured in the oil of the Holy Spirit and healed the points of our brokenness. The truth is, beloved, we all live on the Jericho Road. No matter where you live, your life runs right down the middle of a Jericho Road. And this parable summons us to be ministers and messengers of mercy in Christ's name and for His glory. Luke chapter 11 introduces yet another kingdom value, and that's the value of persistent believing prayer. And you'll find in Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through verse 13, an extended section on prayer. And I'm just going to tell you, we're going to have to fly right through it, which is what we're going to do. This is going to be a theological drive-by shooting. Um, I'm just going to spray stuff everywhere and we'll see what happens. But let's start in Luke chapter... That's an awful image, isn't it? Uh, you just get that image out of your mind. But, but there's a lot. There's so much in this parable, it really ought to be done in several parts. But, but I'm going to kind of compress it and let's hang on, hold on, and, and ask the Lord to help us. Um, Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, verse 13. I thought my eyes were going bad for a second. What a relief. Um, Luke chapter 11, verse 1 and following through verse 13. Now it came to pass as he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them in verse 5, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me, the door is now shut, my children are in bed with, are with me in bed, and I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you for everyone. Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. 
If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Luke uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, introduce a single subject. The subject is prayer. And this parable comes in the middle of a section of instruction on prayer. In fact, the context of the parable is in response to a question in verse 1. Did you notice the question, Lord, a disciple says, teach us to pray. Now, frankly, folks, I marvel at that because the disciples for almost four years had witnessed unprecedented ministry. Incredible things had happened in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not ask, teach us how to accomplish or work these great miracles. They had heard incredible ministry of God's Word. It was said of Jesus in John chapter 7 that no man spake or spoke like this man. They had witnessed this ministry. They had seen the miracles. They had heard the proclamation of God's Word. And here they find Him praying. And the request is this. Lord, teach us to pray. must have been something in the manner, the motive, the fervency, the urgency, the sincerity with which our Savior prayed. But this disciple voices the request for the rest of the disciples who had come upon Jesus praying. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus responds to the disciples' question. In Jesus' response to the disciples' question, He gives some specific instruction on prayer in verses 2, 3, and 4. And His response is what has been commonly called the Lord's Prayer. That's how you and I know it, the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may have been reared in churches or denominations where the recitation of the Lord's Prayer was a regular uh, part of your worship. Um, But actually, this is not really truly technically the Lord's Prayer. And you say, why is that? Because there are seven petitions here, and Jesus could pray all of them but one, and I think it's the fifth petition. Jesus could not pray, Father, forgive me for my sins, because He was sinless. The Bible says that He was the sinless, spotless, harmless Lamb of God. He did no sin, nor was guile or deception ever found in His mouth. So this technically would not be the Lord's Prayer. It's not a prayer necessarily that Jesus would pray. He could pray six of the petitions, but one He most certainly could not. It's more likely that the true Lord's Prayer is the one found in John 17. And it would be a digression for us to turn there for me to spend much time in that. But I would commend this to you, John 17. It's in the context of the upper room in which uh, Jesus is instructing His disciples. They've had, the, they've had the, the, uh, the Last Supper. He's bathed the feet. Judas has left. Uh, John 14, Jesus is talking about a place that's prepared. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about a peace that He would give. John 15, he talks about abiding in the vine. When you get over to John 17, I think we're on the very portals to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what Jesus prays in John 17 toward the end of it. He says, Oh, Father, I do not pray for these alone, meaning the eleven, 
But I pray for those who will believe on me through their word. Folks, that's us. We've heard the apostolic witness. We've heard the gospel. And faith has been kindled in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we've received the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a part of that great apostolic company that's come to faith through their word, through their witness. Jesus says, I don't just pray for the apostles, but I pray for those who would believe you and me. And here's what Jesus prays in John 17. He says, Father, I pray that you'd preserve them, that you would keep them. The ones whom you've given me, keep them. And then I pray that they may be one as you, Father, and I are one. And then he prays that someday they may be presented before the Father and they may behold the unrivaled, undiminished, unveiled glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, he prays, keep them that they may behold my glory, the glory which you've given me before the foundation of the world. That, folks, I believe is the Lord's Prayer prayed in the context, in the shadows of Gethsemane. And when Jesus says in the other three Gospels, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me, John 17 informs that there is no other way. If we would be preserved, if we would be united, if someday you and I would behold the face of the Father in glory, it must be because Jesus submitted to death, even the death of the cross, and was raised again triumphant, over death, hell, and the grave on the third day, ascended into heaven and intercedes for you and me. I believe when Jesus responds to the disciples' question, this really is the disciples' prayer. There are seven petitions here that indicate the scope and the manner with which you and I are to pray. He says, hallowed be your name. It starts with a focus upon God. It's a pleading for the kingdom of God to come in power and fullness, for it to be consummated. And if you're not praying that when you have teenagers, you will pray that. Oh, Lord, come quickly. I've said that before, but I love to say that. Um, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It's an eschatological prayer. That's so impressive. It means that we're praying that in the end of time, that God's name and His honor would be vindicated before the nations and that every knee would bow and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're praying for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that He would meet our needs and do so in a way that we see His hand. We're asking for forgiveness of sins, and we're praying that we might be a forgiving people. We're praying that He would lead us out of temptation, that He would deliver us or protect us from the evil one himself. Folks, we're in a tremendous spiritual battle. We deal with a fallen culture that defines life daily from a fallen world perspective. We deal with our, the own remnants of fallenness in our being, the remnants of sin. And then this text suggests, as others do, that you and I face an incorrigible, malevolent enemy of God and His kingdom, Satan, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. So this is the disciples' prayer. Jesus modeled perfectly and consistently what it is to pray. And John, or pardon me, Luke chapter 5, verse 16, He often withdrew, the Bible says, into the wilderness and He prayed. And John 6, He went out to the mountain to pray and He continued all night in prayer. 
In Luke chapter 9, he, t- he takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and he begins to pray and his appearance was changed and his garments became white and glistening. A little bit later in Luke chapter 22, he would pray, Luke 22 says, until his sweat would become like great drops of blood falling down. This is the context of the disciples' request. Teach us to pray. Jesus says, okay, this is how you pray. You begin with the glory and the honor of God pleading for His vindication. You pray that He would meet your daily needs and do so in a way that His glory is magnified in your life. And you pray that He would forgive you and that He would make you a forgiving person and so on and so on. That's His instruction on prayer. But are there incentives? That's great, but are there incentives to prayer? This is where this parable on prayer comes in. I think this parable and its application which Jesus gives gives you and me two incentives for bold praying, bold kingdom praying. John Piper called prayer uh, uh, walkie-talkie in a spiritual battle. There are two incentives in this text, which I'm going to cover just very quickly, which undergird, motivate, empower, bold, persistent prayer. The first incentive in this bold, persistent prayer is that God is faithful to His honor and to His character. God is faithful to His honor and to His character. Jesus uses a parable that involves extraordinary hospitality, which was not uncommon in that day. In fact, you could say that extraordinary hospitality was a leading characteristic of that culture then and in some cultures even today. There are numerous biblical examples of this. In John 18, Abraham beholds strangers coming down the road. It's um, perhaps a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or it's a theophany. It's a, uh, an appearance of God in a form that's visible and he's accompanied by two angels. And what does Abraham say? Sarah, bake some bread. I'm going to kill a calf. You guys come in and eat with us and stay with us a while. As we would say in the South, y'all come on in. In Genesis 19, the two angels go down to Sodom and there Lot sees them staying in the open square. Lot says, hey, don't stay out here. Come in. We've got plenty of room. Come on in and stay with us. Abraham sends his servant. In Genesis 24, Dr. Young preached... uh, on these texts recently. Tremendous sermons. Tremendous sermons. But he preached on these texts um, before he took the, the break on, uh, on family themes. And uh, in Genesis 24, the servant goes, and what do they say? Hey, come on in and stay with us. We're going to take care of the camels. we got plenty to eat. Why don't you spend the night with us? This kind of hospitality was characteristic of the day. So Jesus tells this parable. There's a guy, he's a Waking one night, an unexpected guest has come. He goes to the cupboard. There's nothing to eat. So this is shameful. He goes next door to his friend's house, knocks on the door. Remember, it's midnight. And uh, the man is aroused from sleep. He hears the request. Hey, friend, I've got company. Lend me three loaves of bread. The man who's aroused from sleep would have the kind of response that we would have. You know what the Greek means? Get out of here and leave me alone. No, he was aroused from sleep. And he said, "I, gosh, do you know what time it is? No, he says, I can't help you. He says, the door's locked. Deadbolt, got security alarm on, padlocked. 
You remember Sanford and Son, all those locks on the door? The door's locked. Uh, I'm not coming out. You're not coming in. The kids are in bed. They lived often, had simple accommodations. Everybody slept in the same room. He says, there's no way I'm baking bread for you tonight. Which would have been shameful because hospitality was um, an important value. It was a matter of honor. It was a matter of family honor. Of The honor of the village was at stake. And yet Jesus goes on to say, and the meaning of the parable turns on this in verse 8 very quickly, I say to you, though he will not rise, in verse 8, and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, say amen. Ooh. Okay. I have my marker. You know, this is called the smart board, but you know what this really does? Are we out of commission? Let's don't even worry about it. I was told today that the smart board makes smart people look smarter and it makes dumb people look dumber. You figure out which is the case tonight. I've steadfastly avoided this thing uh, for this very reason. But if you have the New King James Version, the word in your text is persistence. If you have an NIV Bible, say amen. All right. You know, that's not the one Paul used. If you have the NIV Bible, the word is boldness. Boldness. It translates a Greek word, which basically means shameless. It means this guy came to his neighbor, knocked on the door at midnight, and he was shameless in the asking. He was fearless in the asking. He didn't mind coming over and asking because hospitality was at stake. Now, the meaning of the parable turns on this one word. Jesus has given us the disciples' prayer. Pray like this. And now He gives the incentive for prayer. You can pray with boldness. You can pray with persistence. And He's comparing the, the, the man who needs bread with the disciples. It's a comparison. But listen to this. this is, you've got to catch this now. The contrast is between God and the man who would not get out of bed and feed. And here's what the parable basically means. It's getting late. We've all had a long day. Let me cut to the chase. It basically means this. God is utterly unlike the man who's unwilling to get out of bed and break bread. He is utterly unlike that. What Jesus is saying, if this guy, even though he was a friend, finally gave in, how much more will God, who abounds in grace, who is merciful and full of goodness, Give to His disciples who need bread. The point is this, guys. We don't have to overcome God's willingness in prayer. The problem in prayer is not God's unwillingness. Sometimes it's my own indifference. It's my own spiritual complacency. This parable of this friend awakened at midnight and so on really hinges... On this understanding, it's, this parable says prayer is more about the grace of the giver and less about the persuasion of the prayer. Sometimes we become so focused on dotting our I's and crossing our T's that we fail to realize that we're coming to a great and gracious God who loves to hear the prayers of His children. We don't have to beg or plead God 
into acting or showing His sufficiency or showing His grace. God is faithful to His character and His honor, and those are the important incentives for prayer. When we pray, in essence, we're saying, Oh God, show Your faithfulness, show Your character, vindicate Your honor, show Your strength and Your sufficiency. Use this illness, use this unemployment, use this mission trip, use apologetics on, this, on the beach this week to show the power of Your grace and Your goodness in the lives of these teenagers. I have a son there. You have a son or sons there. There were over 90 of them yesterday. Uh, what a great sight with all these counselors. Um, and I prayed this morning that God would uh, subdue many hearts to Himself there this week and use uh, 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 Dr. Young and Jim Umloff and Randy Ray and all those guys who are going to be speaking in a very significant way for His honor and His glory. The unprepared host asked his friend, to lend him three loaves. This word lends an interesting word because it's a friendly request. He's just asking, could you let me use your resources? It's not a banking term where I'll pay you back. Think about that in the context of these seven petitions. When we say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, God, use your resources. Use your resources to accomplish your will and to magnify your name, your nature, and your character in the advance of your kingdom. In lending these resources, God is honored. He owns it all anyway, doesn't He? I'm reading in Psalms right now devotionally, and Psalm 24 reminds us that the earth is the Lord's, the world in all its fullness is His. I read once in Haggai chapter 2 that the gold and silver belongs to the Lord. It's all His. And so whether we're pleading for daily bread or we're pleading or appealing to Him for grace in difficult circumstances, it's all His. And in this little parable here, the incentive for prayer is God's nature and God's character. He has given us incredible promises, hasn't He? Incredible promises. And when you and I are wondering if it's worthwhile to pray, when it seems that our prayers would go unanswered, our needs would remain unmet, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and heaven seems deaf to our pleas, we persist because of the character, the faithfulness, and the honor of the one whom by grace alone we call Father. Father. You know, over and over in the Bible, when Jesus prayed, He called God Father, Father, Father. God's honor is involved in prayer because of the promises that He's given to His people. That's the basis of bold, persistent prayer. God's character, God's honor, God's faithfulness to Himself. And I believe Jesus' application very quickly supports that in verses 9 and 10. Jesus presents these verses as a command. Ask, seek, and knock. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. It's an imperative. It's a command. But it's a command that has a blessing promised appended to it. In other words, ask and it'll be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened. There's almost an escalating intensity, isn't there? We move from a simple request of asking to seeking to pounding on the door. There's urgency 
There's diligence. There's intended, There's intensity here. Jesus invites us to make direct request to God. He says, ask, and it'll be given. That's pretty bold, isn't it? That's pretty amazing coming from our Lord. Ask implies requesting assistance for known needs like giving us daily bread and forgiving us our sins and leading us out of temptation and delivering us from the evil one. He invites us to seek because he who seeks finds. Seeking implies not only asking but also action. For example, God rained manna in the wilderness, a desert, for 40 years. But they had to go out and gather it. They still had to go out and gather it. Seeking God's will, His direction, still implies that we use diligently means. Asking God to meet our financial needs still means that we use diligent means. But we use those means in dependence upon God. Confidence and boldness in prayer lead to bold action. Because we've prayed, we believe God is leading us and empowering us, then we act boldly on that basis. Jesus even invites us to knock because to him who knocks it will be opened. One commentator said knocking is asking plus acting plus perseverance because one knock leads to another knock and another knock. Unless we be discouraged in the asking, the seeking, or the knocking. Guys, this almost seems too good to be true. Look at verse 10. For everyone, everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, to him the door is open. Who is everyone? It's you. It's Johnny Coggin. It's his friend Justin. You guys did a great job tonight, by the way. Tremendous. It's all of us. It's all of us. It is a certain and universal promise from our Lord Jesus Christ. The first incentive that Jesus gives for shameless prayer is that God is faithful to His character and His honor. The second incentive, and more briefly and quickly, that Jesus gives is God's fatherly goodness to His people. If you look again very quickly at verses 9 through 13, or, or actually more directly, verses 11, 12, and 13, the emphasis seems to be on God's willingness and desire to give and Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says, look, if your son asks for bread, are you going to throw a rock at him? If he asks for a fish, are you going to give him a snake instead? If he asks for an egg, are you going to give him a scorpion instead? What's the obvious answer to that? Somebody say it. No. You're not going to refuse the requests because all those are necessities. Those are requirements for life and living. And they show your goodness to your children. And he says, if that's true, you're evil and you give good gifts, how much more will the Father give? How much greater in goodness is God to His people and to His children? A.W. Tozer said that God is kind. He's tender-hearted and of quick sympathy. His unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. But by His nature, He's inclined to bestow blessedness. And He takes holy pleasure in the happiness of His people. God's goodness is revealed in creation, all of creation. Psalm 19 says, declares the glory of God. The other evening, uh, Melinda and I 
I think it was two Saturdays ago, Melinda and I were going to eat barbecue on a Saturday evening at Corky's on Poplar in uh, Collierville. And we saw a completed rainbow. Did anybody else see that? Wasn't that phenomenal? Uh, we saw people out in their front yard taking pictures. It's been years since I've seen something that magnificent. Do you know that, that the glory of God is revealed in that rainbow? Because it is a testimony that God has made promises. And for over 3,000 years now, He's kept that promise. And in the reflection of that rainbow, we behold the goodness of God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, says that God is pleased to make the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He's pleased to send rain on the just and on the unjust. Even in creation, the chirping of the birds, spring with the budding of the flowers, fall with the falling of the leaves and the beautiful colors, and Tennessee football in September. And everybody said, Amen. Well, not everybody did. And I know who you are. Um, shows the goodness of God. We see the goodness of God just in incredible kinds of ways. Day by day, we are the recipients of His goodness. History reveals the goodness of God, biblical history and otherwise, as He restrains evil and promotes His interests and preserves His people. God's goodness is clearly revealed, however, in the gift of His Son to save sinners like us. Oh, the goodness of God to you, Bruce. How grateful we are. And we join with you in thanking and praising God for His incredible goodness. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to do a funeral for a man. He was in his 80s. He died with respiratory problems. When I would go visit this aging gentleman, all he would tell me about is his adopted son, who was his namesake, Joseph. Finally, um, I got to meet Joseph, and it was at the man's funeral. He was um, a former Marine. He was a graduate of med school and was during, doing urological residence in St. Louis. I'll never forget standing at that funeral when they played taps, and they folded the flag, and the adopted son, Joseph, stood at attention impeccably dressed behind sunglasses his body quivering with emotion but I never saw him break I never saw him break a few days later I went over to see Daisy the widow and I said it was nice to meet Joseph I've heard so much about him and she said you know people handle grief in their own ways she said when Joseph came to see his dad. Mr. Cheryl passed away at home in a hospital bed under care of hospice. When Joseph came to see his dad, he crawled in to bed with him, put down the rails and crawled into bed with him. And he draped that frail, bruised arm over his shoulder. And he said, Daddy, you remember when I was a boy? You'd tuck me in at night and you'd rub my hair. Daddy, would you rub my hair? And he laid in his bed with him for over an hour. At the end of that hour, he walked back to their tiny two-bedroom 
government-provided, government-subsidized house. And Daisy said he wept profusely for over an hour. What a difference Joseph Sherrill made in Joseph's life. He had poured his life into him. He had had him since he was early elementary age. But oh, greatly beloved of God. What a difference the love of God has made in your life. What a difference, Bruce. And you and I don't know the half of it until we stand in His presence someday. And we behold the Savior. And we behold the scars and the marks of our redemption. Behold, John says in 1 John 3, what manner of love God has bestowed upon us. His goodness is revealed in creation. Yes, the regenerate see it, the unregenerate don't. They ascribe it to other things. We see His goodness in history. We see His hand. But I am telling you, we supremely see His goodness in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners like us. And Jesus says, if your earthly father, if Mr. Sherrill could pour out out of his meager resources and make a difference in Joseph's life, how much more will the God of heaven pour out His resources upon His children, not for frivolous ends, not for meager, felt issues, but so that His kingdom will be advanced, so that His glory will be known among the nations, so that His grace and His power might be demonstrated through His redeemed people even the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans, at the end of Romans 8.32 said, If God did not spare His Son, but He gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him also freely give us all things? Jesus would point out God's protection and provision to this meager band of disciples in Luke 12. And He would say in Luke 12.32, Do not fear. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's a great passage on prayer, isn't it? Here's how you should pray. Our Father. Oh, our Father, which art in heaven. Here's why you should pray. Because in your praying, God will be faithful to His character and to His honor. You can count on Him to fulfill what He has said that He would fulfill. And in your praying, you can count on God pouring out His fatherly goodness upon you as He ministers to you and fulfills those requests. The text deals with the kinds of things for which we should pray, and I'm running long and I'm going to close. It's needs or necessities. Things like daily bread are near constant battle with sin and the evil one. Certainly it's the glory of His name and the advance and consummation of His kingdom. You know, there's not a request in this parable that's trivial. It has to do with selfless love and self-giving to meet and to minister to the need of another. The text also, I think, indirectly suggests that we can trust God's wisdom and goodness. Jeff, what about all those unanswered prayers? What about all those unmet needs? I would just simply say this. Can you trust God? Can you trust His wisdom? Can you trust His grace and mercy? 
Can you trust His fatherly care? Can you trust that He has set His love upon you and He aims to do you good all of your life? And we cannot interpret the good except on Romans 8 that we be conformed to the image and likeness of God. God's idea of blessing is quite different than mine. Because the text closes, I think, with the ultimate blessing, and that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. How much more will He give the Holy Spirit? An heir to the Puritans, J.C. Ryle said, and with this I quit, The Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things. We have life, light, hope, and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love, God the Son's atoning blood, in full communion with all three persons of the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, God, may you bring honor to yourself and advance your kingdom through the prayers of your people in this place, Gracie Van. Amen. Father, how grateful we are for fellowship and communion with you. Would you forgive us for our prayerlessness? With so many great incentives for prayer, yet I find this text a source of conviction in my own life. Forgive us, O God, and give us afresh your Holy Spirit to empower us to live to the praise of the glory of your grace. For Christ's sake, in whose name we pray, amen.